Hello, I'm Greg Doran, Artistic Director Emeritus of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Welcome to this podcast about my Folio Roadshow. In my journey trying to see as many of the extant Shakespeare first folios in the world, one or two things became very clear very quickly. It's probable that the original print run of the first folio was around 750. They were sold from Edward Blunt's shop, the Black Bear, in St Paul's Churchyard, but of the 235 surviving copies, only around 50 of them are still in the UK. So where are the rest, and how did they get there? Well, as I found out, there were, until recently, 15 in Japan, though now there are only 13, a baker's dozen. In Europe, well, there are three in Germany, two in France, one in Italy, one in Switzerland, oh, and one in Dublin. That's only eight copies. There are three in the entire Southern Hemisphere, one in Sydney, Auckland and Cape Town. Apparently, there are none in India, which I find surprising, and none in either Russia or China. So only 64 copies in the UK and Europe, Japan, Africa and Australasia. Where are the other 171? You've guessed it. In North America. The story of how they got there is the subject of this podcast. There's a great punch cartoon from the early 1920s. It shows a scowling Uncle Sam with his familiar goatee, striped stirrup slacks and tailcoat. Under his right arm, he carries a large volume identified by a dangling label which reads Shakespeare First Folio 1623 and under the other, a large framed painting labelled The Blue Boy T. Gainsborough. Uncle Sam is staring quizzically down at Shakespeare's tomb in Holy Trinity Church, with its famous malediction not to disturb it, and cursed be he that moves my bones. Watching tremulously from the sidelines is the quivering wraith of William Shakespeare, dressed as if he's just stepped down from his monument. Uncle Sam says, Now that's real disappointing. I'd set my heart on that skeleton. The Uncle Sam cartoon identifies him as Autolycus USA, presumably because he is a snapper-up of unconsidered trifles. It is dated May the 24th, 1922. The Blue Boy was purchased the previous year by Henry Huntington for $728,000, the highest price ever paid for a painting at the time. The painting's journey from London was tracked in the media as if he was a young rock star with headlines shouting, The Blue Boy is on a train. The Blue Boy is crossing the ocean. The Blue Boy is traversing across America. The Blue Boy has arrived in California. In November 2022, I was invited to participate in a Shakespeare conference at the Huntington Library in California and was lucky enough to be allowed to see the four first folios they have in their care, 
all of which were purchased by railroad magnate Henry E. Huntington. Dr. Stephen Tabor, curator of rare books at the Huntington Library, agreed to show me their four first folios. One of the copies he showed me was the Bridgewater copy. Uh, so this is the Bridgewater family copy. Right. And this is one. This is one. This is one we can trace back in terms of ownership almost as far as Shakespeare himself. Huh. So this is the Edgerton family, the the That's Earls right. of uh, Bridgewater. Um, and it is seriously defective at the beginning, but look at that binding. Look at that. So that must be that's original. an original binding. Yeah. That's only the second one I've seen. Yeah, I was gonna say that and you buy them, you, you they would have bought them like in, that. Either in a with unbound or that's how they would be bound if you Right. Edward if you went to Edmund Blunt's shop, he had a binding work at the back apparently. So you could buy them on unbound or you could and maybe he had another grade up where there's some gilding on it or yeah, something. Yeah. But, so I always hate to open this up, but uh, that's the 19th century, late 19th century book plate. So it stays in the Bridgewater Library for a long time. Right, until 1915, really, oh, when Huntington wow. bought the whole thing. So the Bridgewater family are the same family. They, they had a scandal, didn't they? The, uh, the the Earl of Castlehaven was uh, in the family. The brother-in-law of the man who owned this book was um, in a scandal whereby he was accused of raping his wife and sodomizing two of his servants, and was a, a serving um, member of Parliament, and was the only member of Parliament ever to have been executed as while he was in office. And it seems as though. The family had Milton write the Mask of Comus to perform at Ludlow Castle, where this book resided. And the figure of chastity is to, you know, the celebration of chastity in Comus is to sort of reassert the family's respectability mm -hmm. after this terrible scandal. <laughs> so it's one of those great folio stories of some of the people who end this book. Stephen Tabor shows me another of the Huntington's folios with a fascinating provenance. And uh, a Miss Grigsby owned it. After oh, Miss Grigsby. So Miss Grigsby is the... She's Charles Yerkes's mistress. She's the oh. billionaire railroader, the man who built every railroad car in America. Uh -huh. Built this copy. And she is... He's the subject of... The Dreisler novel, The Titan, it's a satire in a way of the big um, American industrialists who were hoovering up first folios. I often ask the folk who look after the first folios what other treasures they have in their collection, and in the case of fire, what would they run to save? Uh, Stephen, tell me. So we, we're looking at these amazing, very valuable um, albeit not necessarily that rare book, so obviously that's rare in itself. Mm -hmm. um, so the Huntington uh, suddenly gets um, uh, a, a terrible fire. What do you rescue? Uh, I'd go for the Ellesmere Chaucer first. Would that's, you? That's unique. Wow. Yeah. Is it the Caxton printing? No, it's the manuscript. Oh, the manuscript. It's the 14-0... 
05 oh. or whatever manuscript My goodness. of the Canterbury Tales. Yeah, I, 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 I'm with you there. <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe I go for the Foligno Dante, the first edition of that. Wow. Um, there's folios, you know, to pelt dogs with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the blue boy has recently had a facelift, a hundred years after it first crossed the Atlantic. It now hangs in the Thornton Gallery, alongside other portraits in the grand manner of 18th-century duchesses and fine ladies in their silk dresses and high-coiffured hair. But today, facing the blue boy on the opposite wall, is Kahindi Wiley's response, Portrait of a Young Gentleman, which reconceives Gainsborough's icon. Wiley is famous for his colourful paintings, which, like his recent painting of Barack Obama, insert black subjects into canonical European settings and ornate decorative patterns. The pose of the portrait of a young gentleman is the same as the blue boy's, left hand on hip, though this time it has a white wristwatch, and hat held by the side in the other. Instead of a blue silk costume in the style of Van Dyck, our subject is wearing a tie-dyed black T-shirt with a sunburst of fire, blue shorts and trainers. Both hold a steady gaze, one with soft brown curls, the other with bleached blonde dreads. A little bit hippie, a little bit hobo, a little bit surfer bum, Wiley says. The acquisition of the Wiley portrait celebrates the 100th anniversary of the purchase of the Gainsborough painting by Henry and Arabella Huntington, the founders of the institution. Henry James, the American novelist who made Edwardian England his adopted home, wrote a play satirising the way American millionaires were arriving in England to persuade impecunious members of the aristocracy to part with their art treasures in their possession. The play was never in fact performed in his lifetime, but he turned it into his final novel, The Outcry. It concerns the arrival of an American with a distinct resemblance to millionaire financier J.P. Morgan, who arrives in England with the purpose of acquiring some very great art indeed. He's directed to Dedborough, the estate of a debt-ridden lord. Here's an extract from the novel, and perhaps you can detect its origins as a play. In this scene, a young art connoisseur, trying to make a name for himself, argues against the sale, saying that Britain's art treasures should stay in the country. He opposes the very idea that the family should be drawn into a commercial conversation with the rich American. The man surely doesn't suppose you're traffic. I don't quite know what he supposes, but people have trafficked, people do, people are trafficking all around. Ah, oh, that's what deprives me of my rest and as a lover of our vast and beneficent art wealth, poisons my waking hours. That art wealth is at the mercy of a leak there appears no means of stopping. Precious things are going out of our distracted country at a quicker rate than the very quickest, a century or more ago, of their ever coming in. Well, I suppose our art wealth came in 
save for those awkward Elgin marbles, mainly by purchase too, didn't they? We ourselves largely took it away from somewhere, didn't we? We didn't grow it all. Note that Henry James also presents the counter-argument, arguing that Britain can hardly criticise the Americans. After all, how did they acquire all those European masters in the first place? And what, after all, about the Elgin marbles? A touchy subject back then, as now. So, this is the context. The market, if you like, into which step some very significant figures in search of the very best copies of Shakespeare's first folio. And most famous and most determined collector of them all was Henry Clay Folger. When Sidney Lee produced his census of all the folios he could discover, he unwittingly provided Folger with a shopping list. All Folger had to do was write through an agent to all the current owners and ask them if they would like to sell their folio. Some sent him packing in no uncertain terms. There's a copy in Senate House Library of the University of London which belonged to Sir Edwin Durning Lawrence, famous as a proponent of the theory that Francis Bacon wrote Shakespeare and not the man from Stratford. A year after Sir Edwin's death, Folger wrote to his widow, Lady Edith, asking if she would part with her husband's folio. Her reply was succinct and unequivocal. Lady Durning Lawrence has no intention of selling the copy of the first folio, Shakespeare, which belonged to her late husband. The letter was unsigned. So this is Senate House Library. Of the University of London. Of the University. And this room is the Durning Lawrence Library. And it's named after Sir Edwin Durning Lawrence. Yes. The the arch um, Shakespeare hater. The the Baconian. Baconian. The Baconian. Baconian. That's who called, cool. I believe, called Shakespeare that mean, drunken, ignorant, absolutely unlettered, rustic from Stratford upon Avon. Well, I'm not holding any grudges. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at the Senate House Library of the University of London with the librarian, Katrina Cannon, and Claire Lees, director of the Institute of English Studies. We're in a room which recreates the office of Sir Edwin Durning Lawrence. You know that Durning Lawrence is, is a real element in the story of, of our perception of Shakespeare because of that controversy uh, element, because uh, of his Who Wrote Shakespeare, who wrote Shakespeare bit. Mm. And... Uh, you know, and I, I, I find that fascinating. Um, and the fact that he built his library sort of around supporting the, the whole the, the, the mythology of Francis Bacon, a, a great man and a great philosopher and a great sort of academic. Um, didn't he die trying to freeze a chicken in Highbury? I believe so. I thought he got, he got out of his, he had a theory about being able to freeze meat got out of his carriage up in Highbury somewhere. It was Highgate, actually, not Highbury. Where there was a big snowdrift and, yes. and plunged the <laughs> said carcass of this poor chicken into the, into the snowdrift to try and find out how... Scientific. Exactly. <laughs> scientific. <laughs> yes, I guess he packed 
the snow in and packed the chicken around it and got home, caught a chill and died. The remarkable thing about the Baconian controversy is, is, is the fact that it's still going on. Yeah. It, it just, is. It just will never, ever go that one. It's just going to be rehearsed. It's the kind of conspiracy theory. Thing, yeah, it, it is. It's, it's the just it's, eternal joy it, of it. Yeah. So, so for you, as Shakespeare, well, I yes. mean, for you as an English academic and for you as a Shakespeare expert, it is truly a kind of a conspiracy. It doesn't have any foundation. Uh, I, you know, I don't, I, I would say, I don't, I don't really mind who he, she or they were that wrote the book, works of William Shakespeare. I mean, the fact is, there is an industry around them. I know from a theatre point of view that, for instance, those people who say it was really written by Christopher Marlowe mm, and then he died and, you know, it was all a, it was all a scam. And any actor, you know, my late husband, Anthony Sher, was a great Shakespeare actor, but he was also, had done, you know, Marlowe's Tamburlaine the Great, for instance. And he would say that any, any actor asked to... To, to act Christopher Marlowe and then act Shakespeare knows you that they are it. different authors. You They're different in the mouth. They're yeah. just... Uh, well, I wouldn't say it's different to my ear, but of course yes. for you it's different, different to my mouth. Yes. It's yeah, a, that's a it, good point. Huh? It's the sort of mighty line and the, and to some extent the monotony of the mighty line in, mm -hmm. in, in Marlowe and, and not so in Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, the idea of the authorship, <coughs> the, the authorship controversy goes on, it's moved into the digital age. So now, um, yeah. you know, the, there are, there is a, a quite a healthy industry, I would say, yes. in, in uh, trying to use digital mm. methods yeah. to, 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 to establish on basically word choice. Yeah, kind of, yes. You know, yes. An author, a singular author, whether it's Shakespeare or not, so, so the Bacon does Move into that as well, and the and the the copy of the uh, the play about Sir Thomas More that Shakespeare uh, there is a page of it in Shakespeare's own handwriting, which is up at the British Library. Um, I once did that play because I actually weirdly because I was in Bristol in eighty two when the riots broke out, and in the middle of the play, Thomas More quells a riot, and I thought this is an extraordinary. Here we got Shakespeare talking to the moment. You know, it's a play for today. But the um, the analysis that was done on that back in 1982 by this interesting gentleman called Sir Tom, called Thomas Merri Merriman from Basingstoke, an American professor, he had done an analysis of word um, frequency, uh, frequency, yes, and and and, yeah, and, and, the, and the kinds of phrases, yeah. and he had therefore taken Thomas More, which is in the handwritings of five different authors, mm -hmm. but he said it's all in the style of one yeah. of them, and that one is William Shakespeare. Oh, right. So, oh. um, so I guess that just gives another whole tool for the conspiracy theorists. Yeah. Yeah. But if Henry Clay Folger was unsuccessful in obtaining the Durning Lawrence copy, undoubtedly the biggest struggle he would have was in trying to secure a copy of a folio we have already met. Do you remember the copy sent by the printer William Jaggard to his friend Augustine Vincent, the Rouge Croix Herald, in gratitude for taking his side against the venomous York Herald, Rafe Brook? Well, that was the copy that Henry Clay Folger most desired. It belonged to a Lincolnshire gentleman called Coningsby Sibthorpe. <laughs>
in April 1891, a book dealer named Sutheran was invited to view the library of a stately 18th century pile near Lincoln called Canick Hall. Sutheran found the library being used as a billiard room, and when he explored the coach house, there were piles of old books gathering dust on a high shelf. He asked a young man who worked on the estate for help, and as his assistant threw down the books, there was one tattered volume without its covers, tightly bound with a rough piece of cord. As Sutheran began to examine it, his helper called down, That's no good, sir, it's only old poetry. It turned out, of course, to be the presentation copy which William Jaggard had given to Augustine Vincent. The owner of Canick Hall was a gentleman by the name of Mr Coningsby Sibthorpe, whose family went back to the Doomsday Book. Sutheran gained his permission to tidy up the folio, replacing a couple of missing pages and giving it a splendid new binding, complete with Mr Sibthorpe's coat of arms. When Coningsby Sibthorpe comes down to London with his wife to reclaim his property, the book dealer offers the couple the book or a cheque for £3,000. He has already alerted the most voracious of folio buyers, the American collector Henry Clay Folger, to the discovery of the book, and Folger is desperate to get his hands on it. Coningsby Sibthorpe, however, declines the cheque, and Mrs Sibthorpe explains that they will only spend the money, but they will keep the book. Folger is disappointed, but, as the presence of the book is still little known about, decides to bide his time. Unfortunately for him, Sir Sidney Lee, the compiler of the census, gets wind of this important copy and writes an article about it in the Cornhill magazine. The cat is now out of the bag, and Folger decides to act quickly via the book dealer. However, Coningsby Simpthorpe, now aware his property is in fact a national treasure, has no plans to sell it, declaring he would not part with it for £5,000, an impossible amount to countenance for the sale of any book. Rashly, Folger calls Coningsby Sibthorpe's bluff and offers him £4,500, and is roundly and flatly refused. Eventually, after some quiet negotiation on the book dealer's part and agreeing to throw in a beautiful case for the book, a deal is struck and Lloyds of London confirms it will ensure the volume for its passage across the Atlantic. However, Folger then learns that the book is not in fact complete and that facsimile pages have been inserted and suggests a discount and states that he requires the right to examine the book before the sale is confirmed, at which point Coningsby Sibthorpe withdraws the sale completely. When Folger tries again, without haggling this time, Coningsby Sibthorpe raises the sum to £6,000. Folger, who has remained anonymous up to this point, now breaks cover and despite his book dealer's advice, writes to Coningsby Sibthorpe with an offer of 
£1,000, the largest sum ever paid for a single book. He makes the mistake, however, of referring to the folio as our Shakespeare. And the offended Coningsby Sibthorpe retorts that it is most certainly not our Shakespeare, but my Shakespeare, and insists that the dealer refunds Folger's money. This ferocious book battle is brilliantly recounted in edifying detail by Andrea Mays in her book on the Folgers, The Millionaire and the Bard. She describes it as reenacting in miniature the larger cultural conflict between the two worlds, revealing a more elemental struggle between American triumphalism and British decline. Eventually, Coningsby Sibthorpe accepted an offer from Folger. Mays writes that the episode proved to Folger that despite Coningsby Sibthorpe's feigned indifference to wealth and pose of cultural superiority, an Englishman could in the end, once tempted with enough money, usually be induced to part with treasures. But unbeknownst to Folger, Coningsby Sibthorpe's wife had died in the interim and perhaps he no longer cared about the book or the pestering it had entailed. And perhaps, rather than exposing a truth that everyone has a price, the story reveals the absurd rapacity of the rich, insensitive American bibliomaniac who believes his wealth entitles him to anything. Perhaps Mr Coningsby Sibthorpe had the last laugh. Folger made sure that his prized possession's connection to Coningsby Sibthorpe and the trouble he had caused him was eradicated by nominating his new volume as Folger One and referring to it as the Vincent copy after the Rouge Croix herald Augustine Vincent, friend of William Jaggard. Last summer, I encountered an intriguing folio at Windsor Castle, graciously shown to me by His Majesty King Charles III. Majesty, it's so nice to see you. Thank you. It's such a long time. It's always a joy to see him anyway because he always fascinated you. Made such a study of all this, haven't you, for so many years? Well, in this company, sir. Well, I know. What I really look forward to is learning more from both of you rather than oh. you don't learn much from me, I don't think, still. Yeah, but you've got an amazing library here. <laughs> it is astonishing. Extraordinary. Oh, you think most of it went to the, the British Library? Yeah, yeah. But this volume is is particularly special. You know, I'm, mm. I'm doing a yes. journey around the world looking at first folios, yes. but in this case, the second folio is, is the real joy. So mm. can we show Please. you this copy? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, yeah. you know, it's beautifully bound. Not yeah. the original binding, of course. Um, on the front, you've got G.R., George mm. III, um, who reacquired it uh, for, for the Royal Library. But of course, what makes it such a, a moving book to have, mm. particularly to have here in Windsor, yeah. is that it was your predecessor, King Charles I, copy. So we have 
the top of the page, very faint mm. handwriting. Dum Spiro Sparrow, while I live, I hope. Mm. And then C.R. Carolus Rex. Mm. And we know that he was, he was reading it while he was held here in Windsor, prior to his execution. And at Carisbrook. And at Carisbrook as well, mm. that's right. And um, the great poet John Milton said that yes. uh, his, his greatest consolation in those last days was reading Shakespeare. That's amazing, isn't it? That, that he was. Uh, and what do we know? What, which plays he was reading? Well, that's the the, the fascinating thing because he he knew all the plays well, and that's what is suggests that maybe he was focusing on the comedies to cheer himself up. Well, he would. So this is the the catalogue of all the plays and. Greg, I mean, the yes, uh, look. So he's so he's retitling. Well, maybe he's retitling them. So Benedict and Beatrice mm. for Much Ado, yes, exactly. um, Pyramus and Thisbe mm. for Midsummer Night's Dream, yes. Rosalind for As You Like It, uh, Monsieur Paroles or Mr. Paroles for mm. As Well, and of course Malvolio for, yes, for, exactly. for Twelfth Night. And, and, and he's gone to the, the trouble of putting in the pagination of, of mm. where, where mm. to find these all. So it feels to me as though mm. he's sort of just nominating where these plays are. Or, or Would you think these are your favourite characters from the play? Yes, maybe. Or the ones he enjoyed most or something? Or, or, or it could be, which play is Beatrice and Benedict in? Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it, can you remember it's called Much Ado About Nothing? Or mm. you know, these yes, ambiguous exactly. titles exactly. like Twelfth Night or What You Will, As You Like It, uh, all's well. Yeah. Whereas uh, that identifies yeah. the character. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. His Majesty's right that it's, it's his favourite bits because if you think Pyramus and Thisbe, you know, the yeah, play yeah, within yeah, the play yeah. in Midsummer Night's Dream, they're not really central yeah. characters. Yeah, no. um, but I remember, I you see, being inspired so much by Greg's wonderful plays you did at Stratford, having been, what have I been president for? What, 30, 35 years, years or something? Yeah. Horrifying. <laughs> but I, I've got a wonderful, great big, you know, all, all the collected plays of Shakespeare. Beautifully Bound was given to me long ago for my 21st birthday, Gosh. I think. But I filled it with all sorts of markers with endless How comments on the plays I saw and, at Stratford. And did you did and you the favourite bits and speeches and, and how did you mark it as a matter of interest with, well, with I've done annotations? It with little little you know, bits of paper yes. like that. Yes. Um, inside. <laughs> they all got curled over now. I definitely want to see that one day, sir. Yes, please. Um I it's so funny because I never realised that King Joseph did this. Right. But when I did it myself did it. without yes. thinking just because I wanted to try and remember these yes. things. But one of the interesting things that strikes me about calling Much Ado Beatrice, uh, Benedict and Beatrice is that when uh, King Charles was a boy of 11 years old and his sister Elizabeth got married, the King's men performed a number of Shakespeare plays at the wedding of Frederick Elector Palatine and, and Elizabeth. And in the, uh, the, the accounts uh, 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 of payments for that to the king's men, it calls much ado about nothing Beatrice and Benedict. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it seems that uh, you know Shakespeare may have wanted to call it much ado about nothing, but the way they all remembered it was the one with Beatrice and Benedict. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so of course, all the royal family at that time were great, great theatre lovers, great playgoers. Yeah. I mean, the I think the other very poignant thing is that we know that there was a special performance of King Lear in the palace at Whitehall for. Mm. 
King Charles's father, uh, King King James, and Charles may well may well have been there as a child. And of course, he was, was fifteen. I think was he when Shakespeare died. Yeah, that's that's yes. like that's, that's yes. right. But just the thought that you know that very setting in Whitehall would, of course, be from where he walked out onto the scaffold years yes, later. Exactly. It's an extraordinary thought. Yeah, but what must have been so marvellous in those days was when the King's men with King James I, they had the court season, didn't they? Yes. When yes. wasn't it? Autumn, it was, there was well, a, November there was a Shrove Tide. Shrove Tide was, 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 was a big one. There was a Christmas. They were often yeah. performing on St Stephen's Day on Boxing yeah. Day. Yeah. And I, it, it amuses me that Benedict and Beatrice get uh, rolled out for the royal wedding because, of course, there's a terrible wedding scene right in the middle of Not to do about where the whole wedding goes wrong. <laughs> so I'm not sure what, quite whether they... Then there was that marvellous line, be patient and endure. Yes, 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 yes. But how, yes, because it, it's, it's so wonderful to have had it all happening well, here, or presumably Whitehall, every year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And for you know, uh, yeah. diplomatic yeah. Uh, missions yeah. when they came. Exactly, you know, exactly. and, uh, um, and there are... What I hadn't realised, though, sorry, was, was with the first failure, was that un unless that had been done, yeah. we, we really would have lost uh, 18... Exactly. Yeah. If you look That's at these, we would not... Mm. Without the first folio, if Hemmings and Condal had not produced the first folio, mm. the, we would only have, if we had them, we would only have the plays that had been published in quarto. Mm. Mm. And all of the plays that had not been published would simply have vanished. Mm. And that includes Macbeth, Julius Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra, Twelfth Night As You Like It. it the list just goes on. Oh, yeah. I mean, what, I just can't imagine. I think we would still think of Shakespeare as the greatest writer in the world because we would still have King Lear and Hamlet and It's mm -hmm. a Night's Dream, which in my view is a trio, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, worth fighting for. But what I do not say, why were there no original manuscripts of Shakespeare ever there's one. I mean, there's one. There's one. Uh, there's one uh, copy of a play about Sir Thomas More, yes. which exists in the British mm. Library, which uh, was clearly taken back and back to the to the office of the censor, mm. to the master of the revels, Edmund Tilney, mm. um, because being about Thomas More, it was about mm. the man who had denied the right of the present queen to reign. Which that's a hot potato. Um, I'd have thought to to, to write a play about. So that we, the, the Revels accounts say things like, perform this scene at your peril. Mm -hmm. But one of the speeches, which is the, the speech that Thomas More gives to... Uh, to sort uh, of calm down the crowd. Calm down the crowd. Yes. There's a race riot in the city of London. <laughs> and, and that's the... Uh, so that speech is in Shakespeare's hand. But no, the foul papers or you know, the, the, the actual... Mm -hmm. We don't know, do we, Jonathan? Well, in terms the of thing what? Is, you know, paper mm. was very mm. expensive. So mm. when the plays that were printed in his mm. lifetime, mm. the manuscript would have gone to the printing house, and then it would either been thrown away or recycled. Mm. Um, there would have been the prompt books behind the stage that they'd have kept in the theatre. Some of those might have been lost when the Globe mm. burnt down in 1613, but others would probably have been passed down in the acting company through the generations and then they would have been changed because of course there's this long tradition especially in the restoration of uh, rewriting Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and I haven't realised either how much was done in a collaborative way between it doesn't, say, it, it doesn't say no, uh, Mr. Shakespeare no, and a bit and of Middleton. Shakespeare is the name that's going yeah. to sell this yeah. book. Yeah. But yes, I think we know more and more about 
the various collaborators that he might have had. Pericles doesn't appear in this book um, and doesn't uh, appear in the folio until the third folio. So this, the, the first folio is 1623, the second folio, like this one, is 1632. And then the next one doesn't come out until 1664 after the, the Civil War and the, the Commonwealth. Um, and that's the rarest of the folios, in fact, because um, we think that the, most of the copies of that went up in the Great Fire of London. So that's why the, that, that book's the rarest. What's interesting that, you know, this, the second folio, this, this copy of uh, King Charles I, um, 1632, only nine years after the first folio, they, folio books were usually printed about 750 copies, and they were very expensive. But they wouldn't have done the second folio if the first folio hadn't sold out. So it shows how popular it was. Um, ben Johnson, who you know, also published his folio, he didn't get a second folio until 1640. So it shows how much admired Shakespeare was and how this book so many people really yeah. valued. And does this one, does it have the full, the third version of, of um, Shakespeare's portrait? It has. It has the, um, let me just get to that after these precious first pages. The first one, didn't his head float above his... Yes, so, yeah. so this has been added later. This is an 18th century copy. Yeah. Uh, but the Drusart engraving, um, again, this is second folio, so not first, but mm. the distinct, the differences are um, that in the first folio, there are three different states of this, of this picture. And one of them, which is a very early state, Drusart has this, this, he's added, he's added later on this shadow. Mm. Can you see the shadow under his chin yes, and, yes. and under his hair? Mm. Because the first one looked as though it was the head of John the Baptist on a plate. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it just didn't yes. look, yes. didn't look exactly. right. Um, and does it have Ben Johnson's? Yes, yes, it's it got does. all these. Such a charming, it's wonderful. Well, he has all the yeah. best. There it is. Yeah. This is. It's the best, isn't it? This, the sweet swine. This is my. I mean, the, the famous. Mm. There are famous mm. ones, aren't there? About. My Shakespeare rise and um, not for an age, but for, not for time. Not for The idea that all scenes of Europe will pay homage to him. It's <laughs> wonderful. My favourite bit actually is "Shine forth, thou star of poets." Yes. That's wonderful. Yes. The other very interesting thing about the second folio is that it includes the first yes. published poem of John Milton. Um, first ever. ever. First ever to go into print. Yeah. So he, a huge admirer of. Uh, of Shakespeare. Um, where's the Milton? It's, here it is. is it, oh, here it is, yeah. Um, an epitaph on the admirable dramatic poet W. Shakespeare. And he begins by saying, We don't really need a, a monument because we have the book. And not signed by, by Milton. No, that's right, but it exists in manuscripts, so we know it is Milton. Right, right. Because he doesn't actually credit him with it. No, no. It is wonderful, though, of this. What need my Shakespeare for his honoured bones, the labour of an age in piled stones, or that his hallowed relics should be hid under a starry-pointed pyramid? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think that's great. <laughs> Dear son of memory is a wonderful, uh, yeah, wonderful that's great. description of him, isn't it? Wonderful. Gosh, how marvellous. But I think there is a, there's a copy of each folio, yes. wasn't there, in the collection? In the collection, yes. yes. Got the the, the, you have the. I've just. I just. We've just had a look at the first. <coughs> the first folio. Um, we wanted to look at this because of its very poignant um, mm. Um, mm. signature. Mm. Um, but the first folio here that you have is mm. is also very very interesting. It's been repaginated. It's been smartened up very very. Mm. very 
It looks as if it was actually put together from different damaged copies. You know? yeah. It's a mashup. Is it called a, a sophisticated? <laughs> sophisticated. Or a mashup. A mashup. <laughs> and, I, and I couldn't get around reading a bit about it recently. It was the, all the compositors who did their own thing, didn't they? So it's just endless. But then towards the, the same, end, this it? apprentice comes in uh, and makes terrible, terrible mistakes. <laughs> just puts the punctuation where they feel it. That's right. And there's also the extraordinary thing that the, um, the, yeah. uh, some of the compositors weren't used to printing verse as opposed to prose. So you sometimes get verse as prose, prose as verse. Because I'm just, I mean, the complexity of having these, you know, these double columns and every letter being picked out and you have to put it in upside down. I mean, it's just it, extraordinary. It, it, wonderful apprentice um, compositor. He's the only compositor we know his name, poor lad. So his name was John Leeson. And he, in King Lear, uh, he has correct, he has, he originally puts, instead of when, it, when Lear dies, it says, he dies, he's put capital H, E-D-I-S, he, Edis. <laughs> and then the next time he has a go, he goes, H-E, he, Dis, D-I-S. <laughs> and then finally he gets it right and it is, he dies. No, no. <laughs> and I think it's such a shame that he's the only compositor we know the name of. We do just owe so much to Hemings and Condor, you know, the, the friends, you know, remember they're mentioned in the will and uh, they were the king's men and they, they just wanted to make sure that uh, their, their But other versions then with many more seen directions or... No, the, there aren't. I mean, one of the things about the interesting, my favourite page, as you would imagine, is the page with the actors. Yes. And to some extent, that is the, the interest of... Oh, I'll be able to find that. The interest of that page is mm. that it pays testament to those actors being mm. really part of the, mm. the, 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 the construction mm. of these plays. Just managed to make but it, it is the case, that, as a general rule, the yeah. little quartos published in the lifetime were from Shakespeare's manuscripts, yeah. Yeah. and most of the folio plays yeah. were from the prompt book in the theatre. Yeah. So they do have more stage directions, yeah. things like music cues, you know, yes, trumpet yes. and drums, that sort of thing. Oh, well, now I have made a discovery. <laughs> this is really interesting because it says, uh, so these are the names of the actors, John Lowen, and somebody has acted and added, acted King Henry VIII. So, and then on Joseph Taylor, acted the part of Hamlet. Well, what is so interesting about that is that when Richard Burbage, second on the list, mm -hmm. the man for whom Shakespeare wrote, Hamlet, Lear, Henry V, Brutus, I mean, every great part, um, he had died in 1619. This is published in, the, the first folio is published in 1623. Joseph Taylor took over Burbage's share in the in the in the in the mm. King's Men, mm. and therefore was the next second man to play Hamlet. Um, and from him, we know that Davenant saw him play Hamlet, and after the Restoration, Davenant taught Betterton how what what Taylor had done with the role, and so you get a sense of an unbroken line from Richard Burbage, Joseph Taylor, Betterton, and then right the way through to the latest Hamlet today. You know, Papa S. E. Edu at Stratford. Yes, um, yes, 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 yes. Absolutely yeah. wonderful, isn't it? In the next podcast, the final one in this series, we explore the strange, eventful history of the first folio. How, in the course of the last four centuries, 
Some copies have gone down in shipwrecks or up in flames. See you then.